Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, Saul Marquez here. I get what a phenomenal asset a podcast could be for your business and also how frustrating it is to navigate editing and production, monetization, and achieving the ROI you're looking for. Technical busy work shouldn't stop you from getting your genius into the world though. You should be able to build your brand easily with a professional podcast that gets attention. A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Chris Herman. He's the founder and CEO of Clean Hands, Safe Hands. He has over 14 years experience working in medical technology design and healthcare. His background as a physician and engineer has given him a unique perspective to bridge the gap between engineering and medicine. Dr. Herman started and led the multi-institution research collaboration that developed the core technology utilized in the CHSH, Clean Hands, Safe Hands system. The research team included investigators from Children's Healthcare, Georgia Tech, Emory School of Medicine, the, the GA Tech Research Institute, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is the lead inventor for the patents related to the CHSH technology and serves as the connection between clinicians and engineers. Chris has a PhD in bioengineering and an MS in mechanical engineering and a BS in biomedical engineering with high school honors from Georgia Institute of Technology and his medical degree from Emory School of Medicine. And in the series on, you know, just physicians leaving the bedside to do more, I thought it was wonderful to, to have Dr. Herman on the podcast, number one, to tell us about the work at Clean Hands, Safe Hands, but also to hear about his story and what made him shift from bedside to industry and just to be able to contribute in a bigger way. So Chris, such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, absolutely. And so, you know, I always kick off the interview with what inspires your work in healthcare, but you know, and I want to ask that. And I also want to dig into what made the shift from bedside to doing mm -hmm. something different. Take yeah, us there. Absolutely. So my my entire career and, and even going back to early days in education and training, I've always noticed this big disconnect between engineering and medicine. And this goes back to even time in high school when I was working with um, a couple different surgeons in the Atlanta area and just seeing some of the things that they struggled with that were, in the grand scheme of things, pretty basic in terms of engineering problems, but they just didn't necessarily have the skill set or training to do it. And then kind of the flip side is the engineers that were in the medical field. I spent a lot of time with the orthopedic device world and uh, the engineers in those companies, they had this, the, the resources and skills and techniques but they didn't understand the clinical side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I very viv vividly remember I had the opportunity to assist with one of the first, it was a minimally invasive knee replacements that was done in the Southeast and got about halfway through the surgery and realized that the, the, the tool to hold the implant in place to put it into the knee, mm -hmm. it wouldn't fit through the incision. And so there was okay. this situation where it's, uh-oh, we, we've got to figure something out. And, and, and the surgery itself went well, um, but that kind of kicked off. It was honestly a multi-year journey of them trying to figure out how to better design tools and implants to adapt to kind of the advancing medical field. And as medicine continues to push and develop, 
there are examples of technology keeping up, but quite frankly, a lot of what happens in healthcare is way behind the times. I mean, there's always this kind of joke that we make is, you know, a lot of a lot of information in healthcare is conveyed with clipboards and fax machines today yeah. and pagers. And, you know, that's probably still the only major industry that still relies on very basic handwritten communications to, to operate. And so th- that has been something of an interest of mine that is kind of always driven me and always been my passion throughout my entire journey. And so I, as you described earlier, I went to Georgia Tech and I thought I was going to go off and become a pretty normal surgeon. My mm-hmm. interest has always been in the orthopedics okay. field. And then I got kind of bit by the research bug uh, after my first year of medical school. And then uh, I was fortunate to be in a place with, with Emory. They have a dual degree program and I was able to go back to Georgia Tech for graduate school. But my whole career, my whole focus at that point was, you know, to go off and become a surgeon. It was more yeah. of an academic focus. And what I personally wanted to do is have that in-depth engineering training. And mine was in, my formal training was in mechanical engineering and bioengineering. And, awesome. and because I really wanted to bridge that gap. And I thought I was going to go off and run a research lab and do orthopedic bone engineering and bone mechanics. And that was what I was doing through graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, this problem of hand hygiene kind of came up uh, almost accidentally. And this was by no means on my radar or thought I was something to, that I would actually ever get involved in. But I got approached um, by some clinicians, uh, primarily at Children's Health Care of Atlanta. And they said, you know what, we, we struggle with this, this fundamental, very basic problem. We know that the, the biggest thing we can do to prevent infections is wash our hands but we can't figure out a way to do it. And I think the conversation went something like along the lines of, can you guys help us develop a way to help improve that? In their minds, you guys, or I in that case, was representing the entire collective engineering world. And my response, which I still get made fun of for even today after 15 years was, yeah, sure, it seems simple enough. Let's give it a shot. And, <laughs> and, right? and it's been 15 years and we still don't have it figured out uh, largely. So we, that, that kicked off what was a little tiny research program that it was, a, it was quite frankly a side project for me in graduate school. And we scrounged around, and I think our first grant was for a whopping $5,000. But, you know, we were able to take that money and build a prototype and then learn and then apply for larger grants and larger grants. And then uh, we kind of fast forward about seven years or so. And we've, there's, there's a pretty big research program built with among the, the research institutions here in Atlanta. And, and then at that point, we were kind of hit a crossroads. And for me, personally, I was in my third year. I was basically finishing my third year of medical school. And several things kind of intersected. Is One is we got about as far as we could in the research environment. There are a lot of things that the research community does very, very well. And it's very supportive of early technologies. But we were at a point where we had to go sort of to, to scale up our manufacturing. We were having interest. We were having both from a research perspective and also some real pure customers. And we just couldn't manufacture and run a company as part of the, the research institutions. And so I took what we, I thought was going to be two months off of medical school to partially study it for my boards and then partially kind of just go explore, is there going to be, is, there, is this real? Mm-hmm. And is there an opportunity here? And that ended up taking that two months turned into about four and a half years before I finally was able to go back and finish medical school. And fortunately, the the leadership at Emory were very, very understanding and accommodating, uh, going back and forth between company staff, going um, trying to finish my clinical rotations. Uh, but I did finally finish. It took quite a while, but I did finally get across the goal line. Congrats. Thank you. It's, uh, I mean, and it's super interesting, right? You found yourself in the OR 
and they've got this amazing minimally invasive approach and the spacer doesn't fit in or the, or the, you know, mm-hmm. it's like how in the world, right? And you're like, this disconnect is bad. Right. I've got to do something about it. Right. And so then it kind of leads you down this path of clean hands, safe hands. And, and so, you know, you, you're in between both worlds and now, you know, 15 years later, this has become a, a thing and you guys are reducing infections. Mm-hmm. You're, you're helping save lives, right? Healthcare acquired yes. infection mm-hmm. deaths. So talk to us a little bit about the business now yep. and, and how you're adding value. Yeah, absolutely. So our, our name pretty well encapsulate what we, what we do. And it is, in theory, very simple is... So the problem that we address are healthcare-associated infections. And so these are infections that you get while you're in a hospital. So this is not something that you come in with. This is something you acquire while you're in the hospital. And these infections, there there are several causes, but by far and away, the biggest cause that these infections spread is by performed hand hygiene or by as a result of poor hand hygiene, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And and what it comes from, it's the, you have very well-intended clinicians, doctors, nurses, technicians, who, whatever those roles may be, but they touch things. And the problem that we're all facing with COVID certainly has raised the, the awareness of that uh, at a point, probably more so than ever any time in history. But what happens is the healthcare environment isn't necessarily set up to promote those good hand hygiene practices. So the clinicians get busy. They're focusing on their patients. They're trying to take care of everything else. They've got 60,000 buttons they have to click on a computer to get through the day. And they just get busy and they forget. And that was our, going back to that engineering and medicine disconnect, that was our critical observation that we made years ago, is that healthcare workers are hardworking, very compassionate, very well-educated. They just need a reminder. And so that's kind of where we came in. And our first technology, our very first prototype was this big, ugly box that had a blanking light on it. And we, we took it to uh, our partners at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at the time. And the division chief, and I vividly remember this moment, um, I was describing it to her, showing it to her. Everybody's excited. And she said, no beeps. What are you talking about? It's great. It's inexpensive. It works well. It's great from an engineering perspective. She said, no more beeps. I have so many beeps in my ICU. And I ignore every one yeah. of them except the ventilator. And when we rewind 15 years ago, that was before there's a, a pretty well-documented phenomenon called alarm fatigue now. Totally. But what she was describing is that everything in their ICU beeps and gongs and whistles. And because there's so many of them, they just ignore them. But yeah. the ventilator has a very specific one. And she has learned over the years that if that one gets ignored, something really bad is going to happen. Totally. To, in this case, to a child. But she was absolutely spot on. So we went back kind of with our tail between our legs and scratched her head a little bit and came back with a voice. She said, you know what? Let's give it a shot. And so, oh, so it was instead of a beep, it was, hey, <laughs> watch Yeah, it was, yeah, we said, please. We're in the South, so you have to say please. <laughs> so our very first one, it was my, my niece at the time was, I think, four or five. Uh, um, and their hand hygiene slogan was foam up. So we said, please foam up. So at that point, anytime nice. somebody would walk into the, out of the rooms and not forget to perform hand hygiene, it was this gentle voice reminder saying, please do whatever we want it to do. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that was a case of better being lucky than good. But that simple voice reminder is, has been the single biggest driver of reducing and changing those hand hygiene practices. Chris, so so the voice happens. So it happens audibly so that even everybody around could hear. So it becomes like a social pressure thing. It as is. Well? Now, that was a component that wasn't necessarily by design. Sure, sure, so sure. when so when you if let's say a, a doctor was to enter a patient's room and they forgot to perform hand hygiene right at that moment that they're basically about to forget about to walk over and touch the patient, it's a very quiet voice reminder. And everybody is um, surprised how quiet 
it actually is for it to work. So it's very, very quiet. And so it's a it's to the point where if a patient is awake and aware of what's going on, they will hear it, but we're not going to wake them up at night. We're not going to disrupt them. We made the mistake early on of waking up a sleeping baby in the in that pediatric ICU, and we're, we're, we made sure never to do that again. Oh boy! Um, and so it's very, very quiet. And so, but you're right, and it's it, it doesn't necessarily create an overt pressure. But I've actually watched this happen. Is what happens when a voice goes off? The patient just makes eye contact with the clinician, and everybody kind of knows why that's happening. And they don't have to speak up. They don't have to say anything. And usually, just that eye contact is enough to kind of redirect that clinician to performing an eye. Fascinating, Chris. And, and so, how does this thing, this mm-hmm. box, know that it hasn't? happen like the hand washing has not happened so we put sensors throughout all of the patient Uh, care areas mm -hmm. and and specifically they go on all of the soap dispensers and all of the alcohol-based hand sanitizers and the way the technology works is there's one there's one main sensor that's associated with each room it's usually inside it's almost always inside the room and when, when somebody walks by it knows that it detects if somebody walked by it then looks to see who that person is. We give all of the healthcare providers a little badge reel that sends a wireless signal to help identify who that person is. That was my next question. Okay, yep. gotcha, gotcha. And then all of those sensors talk to each other. And this is kind of the, the, wow. the magic that's under the hood is that's we serious. can say, all right, I just saw Dr. Chris walk into the room all of those sensors then talk to each other and say, hey, did I see him clean his hands on any of those dispensers? If the answer is yes, away he goes. There's no disruption whatsoever to the normal clinical environment. You know, and this is the reality is most of the time clinicians forget. Yeah. Then they make the decision, hey, here's that voice reminder. It reminds them and they always get a chance, a second chance to come back and clean their hands. And then all of that data that those sensors generate is sent to our analytics platform to be analyzed, to be sliced and diced, to be then sent back out to the hospital so they can help identify and address any of the, the challenges that may remain with, with the hygiene. Wow, that's amazing. So, I mean, you've got this down to a, a science and, mm-hmm. and you know, the those nudges to help, you know, clinicians do the right thing. And I mean, it's like, to your point, right? Everybody is busy and the surgeon is thinking about the plan. They want the best thing. You're in it. Maybe it's a tough case. So you're just like focused, right? You want right. to do the right thing and you may, you might forget to have that basic thing done. And so, and so I've never heard of anything like this out there. Uh, and I think it's really neat. You know, I guess, you know, talk to us a little bit about the, the outcomes. You know, how mm-hmm. are you guys making things better? Yeah. Um, for us, the, the main bread and butter of what we do is, is pretty simple. It's mm-hmm. when we can come in and, and with most organizations, we can double or triple their hand hygiene rates uh, within about six months. And we have identified a very systematic way to go through that process. And we lead them on a very uh, specific, we call it the hand hygiene pathway. In doing so, we can very systematically and very efficiently improve hand hygiene. And then we see infections fall. And so we're very proud of the fact that we've had 18 consecutive hospitals over the last year and a half. When you look at them individually, all of them saw a statistically significant reduction in infections within six months of implementing our system. And that average infections, when you look across all of those hospitals, is, o- is over 65% now, which is, in the, the grand scheme of things, of HAI reductions, it, it's a home run. Most hospitals look to maybe 5 or 10% a year, um, and we can come in within a very short period of time and demonstrate that you have the 65% reduction in infections. And then also, more importantly, despite all the complexities that go into causing these infections, we 
have data to show that we can reduce every single type of healthcare associated infection. That's uh, pretty impressive. And the numbers speak for themselves. 65% reduction is a big deal. And Mm When you're talking about lives and dollars, it's it's impactful. I was looking at your site, uh, and Chris, I mean, seventy five thousand deaths per year, mm-hmm. thirty billion in costs. Yes, and when you look at the, especially with all of the financial pressures that COVID is putting on hospitals, these are the dollars are, are hidden and they're kind of tucked away in, in lost reimbursements. But the average hospital bed spends $10,000 a year just on the direct cost of these infections. And we can very confidently say, you know, we can cut those numbers in half. And we have done that. And in, in, since we developed this structured pathway, we've done that in every case. And so in many cases, we can take hospitals from losing money every year to being profitable. It's not uncommon for us to save, um, especially larger organizations, five to $10 million per year or more. There's also, um, some of your listeners probably are aware of the healthcare associated complications list. So it's a hack list, which Mm -hmm. further penalizes hospitals with the highest rates of complications. And the way that those have shifted over the years is is they're very, very heavily weighted to infections. And we're very proud of the fact that any of the hospitals that we had that were on the hack list before using our technology are now off of that list. And that saves, um, that's a, it's 1% of their total Medicare revenue. And so that's when you have hospitals that operate on a one to three to maybe 4% profit margin. That's a huge swing for many organizations in terms of revenue and in terms of profitability. Totally. The numbers speak for themselves. And and so as you reflect on, you know, the company, the progress you guys are making, what what has been one of the biggest challenges you faced and a learning that came out of that? Absolutely. So probably the the biggest one, and this kind of goes back to the the early joke where it's, oh, it's a simple concept. It should be simple to do. It, it turns out that it was much, much more complicated than that. And then when, we, when I think back to, um, it was our first real independent customer that wasn't associated with the research. And we we came in and we've, we were very proud of all the advancements we made, the technology, we had new sensors, we had new analytics, we had this new platform. And we came in, we turned the voices on, they saw an improvement hand hygiene, everybody's excited. And then they kind of hit a wall. And what we found is, well, the voice is the single biggest driver, if not the only one. And what we ran into is that once you get beyond those simple factors of people just forgetting, there are a lot of really complex ways or barriers to performing hand hygiene, um, and quite frankly, any clinical care practice. And this is before we were really exposed to kind of change management and quality improvement methodologies. And in our industry, when you what we do is we, we're part of an industry that is called hand hygiene monitoring. And what we re- learned really quickly is that just because you monitor hand hygiene doesn't mean you improve it. Mm-hmm. And about this time, I had a conversation with Dr. Bill Bornstein, who's the chief quality officer for, for Emory Healthcare. And he shared one of his data-isms with me which is just because you weigh a chicken, it doesn't make it fatter. And that really resonated and kind of very succinctly described what we were experiencing is you can measure a problem 18 different ways and have the most accurate way of measuring or weighing this proverbial chicken, or in our case, measuring hygiene, but it doesn't really create value or doesn't really create better outcomes until you actually change people's behavior. And that's where the complexity comes in. When you look at some large multi-hospital health systems, it's not uncommon for them to have 
five to 10 to, we actually have, even have one health system that has 35,000 different healthcare providers scattered uh, in some cases across multiple state, states, multiple facilities, multiple leadership teams, all with different roles in the organization. How do you then go take that and change their behavior simultaneously and efficiently without having to hire an army of people to go intervene? And that's where when we identified that, and it took us quite frankly years to figure out this pathway. Um, mm-hmm. And when we started to identify, and what it came down to is we would have a hospital that would do something and it would work and we'd see a very a pattern in the data. And then they would, early on, they would struggle and it'd take six, sometimes 12 months for them to figure out something else will work and you see another bump. And what we were able to do is go back and analyze that data and we saw very consistent patterns. Now they were separated in time across all of our different hospitals at that point, but every pattern was the same. And what we tried to do, and it turns out we were very successful with this, is we began to systematically link those interventions in a very specific order. And not only did we could we do it and lead to better clinical outcomes, we could do it very efficiently and very and, and be able to scale across very large health systems. And so while we started out from a research perspective trying to make a, a technology that would measure, and actually in our case, we did want to improve it. When we look at what we have built today, most of our focus is, to go back to our chicken analogy for a minute, is yes, we do have the ability to weigh that proverbial healthcare chicken. But a lot of what we do is, is we have built a way to feed that chicken and get it fatter and get it to grow. And in our world, it's not just about measuring hand hygiene. It's about using data, using technology to help drive clinical behavior teams that leads to a reduction in infection. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys have have gained a lot of learnings and built it into the technology, the process, and uh, it's working. And so it is. Uh, it's been a long, a very long and at times painful journey, but it is working. Now, <laughs> well, I, I certainly applaud your your persistence, uh, Chris. Uh, the work that you've done is is making a huge difference. And you know, as as we think about you know the transition of uh, you know doctors like yourself that have taken different paths. Obviously, the work that you're doing is meaningful and one could argue um, impactful in as much as or even greater amount than if you had stayed at the bedside. And so I want to applaud you for that, number one, and, and also for physicians and others listening. You know, it's inspiration for you to consider doing more beyond the bedside. And if you're a a company that's wanting to make a difference, right? Uh, Chris mentioned at the beginning, the gap. And so the importance of including physicians in the decision-making process is critical. And so, you know, this is this is a, a really great opportunity for us to take some time and, and ask you, Chris, what are you most excited about today? For me, it's kind of the, the accumulation of all this uh, hard work, the blood, sweat and tears, if you will, that has kind of gone into what we do. And you, you mentioned making a difference. And we're, we're actually very proud of the fact at this point uh, in time, every day that we all get up and work hard and go to work, we prevent over 10 infections a day and we save at least one life a day, kind of on average. And that's been the biggest driver for me over the years is I've always kind of with my my medical background, I've always wanted to, to take care of people and help improve the quality of their life. And it's while I'm, I'm not necessarily doing that with the stethoscope and at the bedside anymore, that's what it's all about for, for me personally, is I've been able to apply my engineering background, work with a very, very talented group of engineers who have been able to build something that really does work. But the key to our success is we kind of locked arms very early on with those clinicians. And we frustrated a bunch of nurses early on and kind of locked arms with them and kind of jointly worked through 
the challenges in terms of data, in terms of technology. And, and that's the key is we didn't necessarily, um, we didn't have a magic crystal ball when we first started this 15 years ago by any stretch, but by really kind of combining the, as close as possible, the engineers and the clinicians together to kind of work through and address some of these. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, this is a big, massive problem that compared to what a lot of the engineering world does, isn't necessarily really complicated or, or super hard, but we've been able to combine those in a unique way to have huge clinical benefits, huge financial benefits, and ultimately save people's lives. And that's that's what has has been my driver to, to all throughout my training and and continuing on is launching a startup and from the ground up and continuing to run and see it grow. That is so great, Chris. And and folks, if you're curious about how Clean Hands Safe Hands can help you and your hospital. It's cleanhands-safehands.com, safe hands. If you go to Google, just type in clean hands, safe hands, and it'll take you straight to their website. Just an incredible uh, and inspiring story by Dr. Herman today. And as we conclude the podcast, I'd love to have you, Chris, conclude with a closing thought and the best way the listeners could engage with you and continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to engage with me is probably you can reach out on LinkedIn is probably honestly the best way to get a hold of me these days. Just search Chris Herman, it's H-E-R-M-A-N-N, or email me at Chris at cleanhands-safehands.com. And I think probably a closing thought is that you know, with all of that's what's happening in the world today with COVID and all of these massive changes that have hit healthcare overnight in many respects. It's just the opportunity for innovation and to drive clinical change is probably now greater than it's ever been. And there's a, a huge need to do things differently, to innovate, and just whatever those approaches are, um, just what we have seen over the years is the absolute best way to do that is get as much frontline support and buy-in from those clinicians to help lead to that meaningful change. Love it, Chris. Thank you so much for that. And uh, we, we really appreciate the work that you and your team are doing to, to help reduce infections by improving hand hygiene. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for sharing your story. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage. Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.